0: I'm really excited about the conversation today. I have the pleasure of speaking with Robert Pardi. Robert is joining us from the small Italian village he now calls home after making a major career change from successful finance executive to life coach. He will share with us his transformative journey as a caregiver for his wife, who was also a physician and diagnosed with breast cancer when she was just 30 years old. I think you'll want to tune in. This episode of Saint Someone is sponsored by ALSCA. If you're a caregiver, you know how difficult it is to keep everyone on the same page. With the ALSCA Connected Caregiving Portal, you can securely store and share medical, legal, and financial documents, keep track of schedules and appointments, and share updates. The Ask a Care Guide Helpline puts a care concierge at your fingertips to help you find resources in your area to guide you on your caregiving journey. If you're experiencing additional challenges like living transitions or a health crisis, one-on-one virtual sessions with experts are also available. You can learn more and create an account at alska.com. That's A-L-S-K-A dot com. Our guest today is Robert Party. Robert is here to share the transformative experience he had while caring for his young wife, who also happened to be a physician as she battled breast cancer. A little bit about Robert. Robert was born in New York City and has also lived in Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Rome. He received his MBA from Columbia University and was quickly recruited by one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, in 1997. It was shortly after accepting this position that he and his wife were confronted with an extreme life event that shook the very foundation of their hopes and dreams. Desiree, his wife, while pursuing an MD-PhD, was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer just before her 31st birthday. Despite their trials, both Robert and Desiree thrived over the next several years. Unfortunately, in 2009, after an 11-year valiant battle, Desiree succumbed to metastatic breast cancer. In 2014, Robert decided to leave his comfort zone to pursue what he deemed to be a more purposeful path. Throwing caution to the wind, he pursued a childhood dream to live in Italy and his passion to become a life coach, which came to light as a result of his caregiving journey. He now is a certified life coach and lives in the same Italian village in Abruzzo, Italy, that his great grandfather immigrated from more than a hundred years ago. Robert is one of those rare individuals who embraces change and lives by a philosophy, which he calls possibility in action, taking his desire for transformation and putting it into action daily. Welcome Robert, it's so great to have you today.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Michelle. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, you know, I love, um, I love your philosophy. And it really stands out, uh, you know, the transformation, the desire for transformation, because embracing change is something that most people find really difficult. And as a caregiver, it's almost impossible to avoid, isn't it?
1: Uh, that that's exactly where I think the desire really strengthened. Because, as a caregiver, sometimes you're confronted with change on an hourly basis. But for sure, uh, it is a a journey of change. Watching whether it's you know a family member or a friend have to deal with issues that one never really would have expected or wanted, and that then leads you to have to adjust accordingly.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So it is, you know, I think transformational uh, on so many levels, and every journey is so unique. Um, absolutely. Could you start out by sharing a little bit about Desiree and your role as her caregiver? Um, I think, you know, she definitely had a unique perspective as she was also a palliative care physician. Is that correct?
1: That That's correct. Uh, she wasn't at the time she was diagnosed. Um, she was pursuing an MD-PhD and she actually was hoping to do cancer research, which is why she was pursuing the PhD portion of the MD-PhD. I had been offered a job in Abu Dhabi while she was finishing her PhD and if you know anything about the type of the way the programs work, it's usually you do two years of medical school, then you do the PhD and then you go back to complete medical school. Mm -hmm. So after she completed the PhD, she decided to take a leave of absence to come live with me in Abu Dhabi so we could experience not only living in a different country and the culture but also the ability to travel and and do a lot of things we thought that at a young age it's better to do mm-hmm. and to get a residency visa to live in the UAE one has to go through a mini physical um, and so the fact that she hadn't had a physical in a long time I just said why don't you basically go through a full physical and that's when they had found um, a lump in her breast Mm -hmm. now she had found that lump a year earlier uh, and i can't give fault to anybody here because this was the late 90s basically and a 29 year old or a 30 year old woman with um, a lump in her breast with a family history of cysts Mm -hmm. wasn't to be checked and they didn't do biopsies back then or mris or anything else so um in the uae they decided to do a a needle aspiration and there was no fluid and that was the first time she sort of signaled to me that she couldn't participate in what was happening because she immediately panicked and at that moment I had no no medical knowledge at all I think at the end of the caregiving journey I could have been a doctor myself in mm-hmm. certain ways mm-hmm. um, but I, I asked her I said what's the matter and she said well that's a very dangerous sign and she said the problem is you know I know enough to be dangerous to myself now she followed a philosophy her her own life philosophy was only to do her best. So interestingly, she never knew her GPA from university. She never knew the grade on her MCATs. She asked me to fill that out on applications because Mm. she never wanted to judge her own performance.
0: Interesting.
1: And she pretty much approached when she was diagnosed, well not when she was diagnosed, she woke up from the lumpectomy and she saw, saw a morphine drip and they had um, given her a, it's called a PCA. I can't remember the name exactly now. It's a patient-controlled anesthesia, maybe. Yeah. It's not anesthesia. Mm-hmm. There's another word. Anyway. Yeah, and she, knew, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And she knew that if she woke up with that, that it was cancer. Mm. And she panicked and she looked at me. The doctor, and this is not because... Um, you know anything about the Muslim religion or anything like that this was an Arab doctor connected with the Mayo Clinic because she had the surgery in Dubai but having a 30 at the, at that point when she had the surgery she was 31 she had just turned 31 having a 31 year old young seemingly healthy woman diagnosed he wasn't sure how he could manage the emotions so he spoke to me first And I Mm -hmm. said, let me speak to her. And I asked her, I said, okay, Desiree, so what do you wanna know? And she said, I only wanna know the next steps. Mm -hmm. And that paved the way for a somewhat unusual caregiving role because my role was pretty much to not only support her, reach her dreams, which was just an amazing thing to watch but to be the the library, the repository of all the medical information and make the decisions unless there was something that was extremely important for her to deal with. And um, for example, there was a point she had defined very clearly, I want to be aggressive. This is what I want to do. This is when I would stop my journey and I wouldn't battle anymore. She was very clear on many different things because she had an idea of the way she wanted to live, quality of life, what she wanted to do. So she was very clear in defining that. But there was a point in time she had pursued an analogous uh, stem cell transplant, which at that time was experimental. And then they found out it had no bearing whatsoever on on breast cancer, but she decided to do it because it was the most aggressive thing. Mm -hmm. And after she somewhat went into remission because I wonder now if she ever really was in remission because back then PET scans weren't really um, available and Mm -hmm. so we know that a PET scan is much more accurate than a CAT scan so there may have been some small lesions that you couldn't see on a CAT scan but regardless she was in remission for sort of about nine months and it came back and then at some point in time the chemo stopped working and the oncologist i have to say we had amazing doctors that respected Mm. her not wanting to be involved Mm, which is very hard if you think for a doctor as well because the doctor does the exam speaks to the person and then she Mm. leaves the room (laughs) right Uh, and the person speaks to me but they were very willing and this is i think you know, it falls under palliative care in general because that really allowed her to manage her disease the way she wanted. But Mm. he said, look, um, I'm willing to suggest something really experimental, aggressive, um, and that's to remove the part of her liver with the lesion that is not shrinking anymore. Mm. And I didn't feel comfortable making that decision. So I said to her, look, we have two options. One is um, chemo and one is surgery. And um, the doctor thinks the surgery would be a great option. She said, that sounds more aggressive, let's do it. Okay. Other than that, she she didn't even know the names of the chemotherapy she was on most of the time. Uh, they would actually cover the label on the bag when they would hang her chemotherapy.
0: Interesting. And just to clarify, so when you told her there was an option of surgery or chemo, did you even mention that it was her liver?
1: Well, she had already known that the recurrence okay. um, ha- happened in her liver. So I, I did I did mention that to her and her, mm-hmm. her decision process was, well, look, if we remove the tumor burden because this is where the medical knowledge came in, mm-hmm. that would also give me at least some downtime before having to go to another chemo so I could get stronger. Mm -hmm. So she was very technical in certain things, um, but then, like I said, she didn't want to know, and it made it somewhat odd for me because what I started realizing is I was internalizing what it would be like to have to carry the fear of dying with cancer and being aggressive. The only way I could do her justice was to sort of literally put myself in her shoes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is very, very difficult, I can imagine, because being in, not that there's kind of a standard caregiver role for someone with cancer, but what would seem The more typical or more common role of, you know, being being a support and dealing with your own grief of having someone you love very much be diagnosed with a a life-threatening illness, uh, you're also taking on her fears. It would seem, you know, to me as you describe it. So it would almost be this double whammy of, uh, you know. I I have my fears of losing her, and I'm also in the place of, you know, while I'm advocating for her, trying to put myself in her shoes, as you said. So it would seem like one of those things would have to take a back seat, and one would be more front and center.
1: 100%. Um, What was very interesting in some of this as well um, is when – she was diagnosed, we both had a lot of hope that, Mm. you know what, uh, stem cell transplant, something new. Um, She did have 11 of 12 lymph nodes positive. She hadn't known that. She didn't know the size of the tumor, but 90 something percent of the tumor was normal. It was only the Mm. tail, which was cancerous. Um, Mm. So to me, that gave me a lot of hope. When, mm-hmm. when she went into remission she fell into a, a big depression and I, I, I couldn't really understand it at the time mm-hmm. and um, so much so that her oncologist basically forced her, threatened her saying I'm not going to continue to be your doctor if you don't see a therapist and get on antidepressants mm-hmm. when the cancer recurred I saw her mood change and she became in a way happier. And mm-hmm. I started falling apart because I was really blindsided. I, I just held on to hope with you know, all my might. Mm-hmm. And I, when I spoke to her about that, I said, I don't understand, how are you okay? And um, I always mispronounce this, but there's something called Damocles sword, mm-hmm. which is part of mythology about a sword hanging over your head that's about to fall at any time. And she used that analogy, and she said, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And that made me realize that she had never shared with me her fears to protect me Mm -hmm. and allow me to do my job for her. And that was a signal to me that I also have to put my fears aside. And many people have asked me the question of, But wasn't it difficult to carry all that information, knowing what was happening? And the honest truth is, while there were moments of panic and fear, one, I had an amazing community, um, medical community around us, so I felt Mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. But more than anything else, I defined a purpose to it, where carrying that weight was the gift I could give the woman I loved. Mm-hmm. And it it became a lightweight because the more that was put on my back, the more I knew I was giving her. And I was watching her flourish. I watched her become, you know, the director of palliative care at New York Hospital. I watched her go around the country speaking about palliative care. Uh, she she was just, we volu- she volunteered um, at a hospital in India. So I just, I, I watched this woman just evolve and I knew that it was because I was carrying what I was carrying. The one difficulty that I confronted as a caregiver is that a caregiver needs, and, and I believe this more than anything else, a caregiver needs to reach out to people mm-hmm. and also needs to reach out to people where they can speak the new language. You know, yeah. I learned a whole new language of, you know, medications and Neupogen and Procrit and red blood cells and white blood cells and, mm-hmm. you know, all these all mm-hmm. these things. I necessarily couldn't speak to my my mom about that. But what mm-hmm. I learned is I couldn't speak to anybody mm-hmm. because the few times I did at the very beginning, my wife was so observant, and she'd say something like you didn't say anything to your mother, did you? Because she was looking at me strangely. Should I worry? And I'm like, oh, you know my mother. She's just, you know, she's she, she's a crazy mm-hmm. Italian lady. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's always in her own head type thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I realized it was dangerous because if somebody gave her the wrong look,
0: mm-hmm.
1: she could interpret that. So then mm-hmm. I stopped reaching out. And in a way, I had to learn how to surrender mm-hmm. and say that, it, there is there's nobody I can talk to about this, but even if I spoke to people, it doesn't change the traje- trajectory that she's on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So let me just live it.
0: Interesting, yeah. Oh, that term surrender. You know, it's uh, it's it's such a difficult thing to do, but makes things easier in so many ways when we're able to do that, even in stages. Um, And, you know, back then, too, there weren't caregiver support groups. Caregivers weren't really recognized even. It was just, okay, you're a family member doing what a family member would do. And so there were even fewer supports for caregivers out there. I mean, thank goodness now there are, you know, support groups held in churches. There's still a long way we need to go but it was even less opportunity then that you could go someplace and just talk to strangers who were going through the same thing.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, again, we were really blessed with the oncologist, well, both, both oncologists. She changed oncologist midstream, um, sort of at my, my pushing because The first oncologist, amazing man, basically said, we're running out of options. Mm -hmm. And I had heard of another oncologist, which was very creative. Um, So I wanted my wife to go see him, but he was also alternative with herbs and meditation. And Mm -hmm. her being so grounded, she was so rooted in science at that moment. Mm -hmm. It was such a delicate dance I had to do because she was like, that guy's a quack. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, I had heard such great stories about him um, that I I couldn't explain to her. Look, you need to be even more aggressive than you think um, because yeah. it, it's it's funny. While I, I'm sure she knew by the end, um, we had only ever mentioned that there was cancer in her liver. It just was staying in her liver. It kept coming back, coming back, coming back, but. Mm-hmm. When she passed away, she had liver in her bones, her lungs, her peritoneum, and her small intestines, as well as her liver. Mm -hmm. Um, I look at pictures now and I never saw she was sick, which is so amazing. I just Mm -hmm. saw this amazing spirited woman. um, And I look at those and I look at myself in those pictures as well. And I also looked like I was a patient. Um, I can't mm. believe I'm a I'm a short guy <laughs> when mm. if, if you put me on a scale I'm only like five foot eight uh, and I was 125 pounds oh my I hadn't no I didn't see it she obviously hadn't seen it either she was um five foot one and she went down to 67 pounds I think at mm. the worst Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when we were giving her TPN and I was learning how to plug things into her port and take blood Mm -hmm. and do all kinds of other things. But I wanted to circle back to the surrender because there's something you said that was so important. And one is like doing it in stages. I think as a caregiver, um, at least I, I was guilty of this. I wanted to do it all. I wanted to do it well. I wanted to control everything. I wanted to be a Superman. Um, I wasn't thinking about taking care of myself at the beginning until I realized that I had to take care of myself to be able to take care of her. Mm-hmm. But in a certain way, we're thrown into a battle as a caregiver, and immediately we want to, we want to know everything, and we this such a burden, um, and and sometimes you do have to create space to become the caregiver it's it's a completely new identity and yes. the idea yeah the and the idea of surrender as well um I didn't like the word when I first heard it. And I think uh, I'm speaking for Americans here, but I think for most Americans, at least New Yorkers, I know the word surrender is sort of negative. It sounds like, you know, you're sort of giving up or you're not, Mm -hmm. you're you're passive. Mm -hmm. But what I realized is surrender more than anything else is is the vehicle to live a moment because you're not thinking or contemplating the end result. Which, in reality, the end result was very, they had told me when she was diagnosed, she was going to have 24 maximum 30 months to live. Mm. She wound up living 11 years and she lived a, a, a really good life. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just despite it all, she refu- she always said, look, I'm, I'm not my cancer or I live around my cancer. She had her own mantras, but mm-hmm. our life evolved and grew and our relationship strengthened. And all of that was because I had to back away from looking too forward. And that's that's what i mean by surrender was to not focus on what could be or trying to force an expectation of what should be and just focus on what we were dealing with at that moment in that time and live as best as we could
0: hmm. yeah and that is that's such a difficult thing to do when you're in a crisis but so important to be present because one of the really difficult things, and it's one of the reasons that I created my professional patient advocacy model was, you know, working in the hospital, I saw caregivers and how exhausted they were and how often at the end of the life of the person they were caring for, they had lost in a way the relationship that they had because they, you know, were so focused on, the duties and tasks of caregiving. So one of my goals was to kind of, you know, take over those tasks as much as anyone was comfortable with, so they could maintain that relationship or not lose it completely, because you're so right. It's especially when you're doing medical procedures, as you were doing, which is very common for caregivers and becoming more common, um, you're learning, uh, you know, how to do all of these tasks. And it's, mentally time-consuming and can be exhausting Um, so staying present and not getting caught up in what's going to happen and the fears around that is definitely not an easy thing
1: I, I agree 100% and you know when you talk about sort of the doing all the medical stuff and everything in the relationship towards the end of my wife's life we actually did start arguing a lot because Mm. you know she was someone that and she knew she was setting herself up for a horrible death if she wasn't going to be able to survive because Mm -hmm. being as aggressive as she was she knew would take a toll on her body that when her body decided to give out it would give out in a big way but she fought for her her identity and her independence. And we started fighting a lot because she would say, I don't want a parent, I want a husband. And it was very hard and heartbreaking because it was very hard to say, but you need a caregiver. Like she didn't want to accept it because she kept these glasses on of you deal with everything. And here I was painting this picture. It's only in your liver. And yeah, she knew she had to get the, the, um, the TPN, which was the liquid nutrition and stuff. And mm-hmm. I basically told her, well, you know why? Um, that's because the chemotherapy has really destroyed the lining of your intestines. So you're not able to absorb food. So we need to give your intestines a break. I knew how to speak the medical language that was logical for her to believe the story. Mm -hmm. but yet I was acting in a way that didn't support that story. So she would get angry with me thinking I was going overboard. And it was a very, it was very hard in, for our relationship. I have to say, um, Mm -hmm. because of the change in dynamic of me becoming what she called a parent, but literally I had become her hospice because, um, I think it was in 2008, the oncologist called me to his office, he had never done that, ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I'm teary-eyed now just saying it because I, Mm. it was March, I walked out of the apartment in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt because that's what I was wearing in the apartment, numb to the whole what life was presenting. I walked and cried the whole way, the nine blocks from my apartment to the, the, the office. I walked into the office, I saw the girls behind the the desk, the nurses, and they looked at me and they were teary eyed and I just knew. Mm-hmm. So when I spoke to him and I asked him, well, what do we do? He said, you're going to have to become her hospice. Mm-hmm. And I had to hide that to a certain extent. I don't know how good I, how well I did that to tell you the truth, because at the end, I know she knew she was dying. I knew she was dying. We didn't say mm-hmm. the words, and, um, but I think for caregivers, the diff- there, there is so much difficulty in balancing. Trying to protect the person and care for the person, but still trying to maintain the dignity for that person, and not treat them as as helpless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a tough balance, I have to say.
0: Oh. Absolutely. Well, and especially when in a way you were trying to keep a little bit of a secret from her, like I'm trying to imagine, you know, doing hospice, but not necessarily having the conversation that, you know, we're doing palliative care, you know, we're doing things to make you comfortable and still giving an impression that maybe there was some hope that would you know, that would just be so difficult. And I think, you know, and again, every situation's different, but when I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, um, gosh, six years ago now, I found it so isolating because first of all, it's so weird to be the person with cancer because, you know, I had had coworkers with cancer your whole life, you know, People that have cancer, and it's such a scary thing, and you feel so awful for somebody. And it was just so strange to be the person with cancer, and how some people, you know, were there and wanted to help out and be involved. And an interesting thing happened that was surprising to me in that the people, some of the people closest to me, friends I'd had since childhood, completely pulled away. Like they were MIA for about a year. And then uh, after I'd had surgery and everything, they would kind of check back. And I said, well, I, yeah, I've been fighting cancer, you know, like nothing happened. And they said, we just could not fathom that that could happen to you. And it scared me so much that if that could happen to you, that could happen to me. And they just pulled away. So it's hard to be that person there's so many things that go through your mind and you don't want to be seen as somebody who's disabled or faulty in any way plus there's all the anger you know at how could my body do this I did all the right things and um, wanting to protect the people in your life that love you as well I found with my husband he went who's a very very sensitive person i mean he's he you know cries at commercials and watching you know the voice he's i love that about him he's it's, you know he's very sensitive and he became this super almost stoic man and went right into kind of details of okay well if you have to stop working here's what i'm going to do just facts and logic and that was his way of coping. Once I said, you know, I feel like um, I'm battling this by myself. And he said, the truth is, if I let myself think for a second that you could be gone, I will be useless to you. I will be completely useless. And so for relationships, I think it is it's a hard thing, you know, no matter what. And it does have an impact. There's no question.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you 100 percent. And um i th- like like your husband i at the very beginning wanted to pursue that same philosophy like keep my head down just barrel through and i realized as well that like you said you sort of in a way felt lonely or that i had to let her Discuss all the fears and everything else that she wanted to, without getting lost in, in my own fear. Um, I'll be perfectly honest here. I don't. I don't share this with many people. When when the cancer came back, um, I'm I'm a child of a of a violent alcoholic father, so um, I never expected something like this to happen. But when her cancer recurred. I had such a hard time dealing with it that sometimes I'd go to the, the the pizza place down the block from us in New York and I'd ask for a coffee cup filled with wine. Mm. Um, and I just, because I I couldn't confront all of my own fears. And I can understand why your husband wouldn't have wanted to do that either because the moment that it came back and I realized wow, this is exactly what they said. She's got maybe a year left. Mm -hmm. I became completely useless to her for Mm -hmm. a short, short period of time. And when I watched her being sad for me, like I remember one time um, she was, she was very sick from chemo and, and our dog was sick. And, and I just felt like I was just going to collapse on the floor and I can Mm -hmm. see in her eyes that she was looking at me almost with a great sadness Mm -hmm. that I said, Oh my god, I'm not I'm not being of any help to her. I'm supposed to be lifting her up and not pulling Mm -hmm. her into this pit. That's where surrender and everything else that we just already talked about came in. Mm -hmm. Um and it it is it is hard for for families. Um you know, even for children, because how how do you it's very hard to communicate everything, um, because Mm -hmm. there is so much unknown and I think by practicing certain things you learn to redefine hope. Mm-hmm. And I personally, while I would have loved for her to still be alive and to somehow have been cured, you know, like every year a new drug was coming out and and there was always that. But I realized that my hope had to be for us to live the best life possible now. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. instead
1: of hoping everything was going to be okay for the future. Mm. And I had to redirect that hope. And that was another way that I was able to then be able to accept her vulnerability and my vulnerability.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I would think that in some ways, um, you know, being in that with her, because what she did, whether it was her intention or not, from an outsider is she really brought you into that experience. You know, I mean, you couldn't be on the outside making plans you know, for for how you were going to maybe step in because you were managing her care. And you know, it's also interesting to me and I think it's so wonderful that you had a good relationship with the healthcare team and I'm sure it helped a lot That your wife was in fact a physician and anyone who is a healthcare professional knows who they want taking care of them i mean you can ask anyone that works in a hospital or anywhere you know who's really good and so that probably helped tremendously so hopefully you didn't have as many of the frustrations with the healthcare system as so many other people have but um one of the questions i had you've answered some of it was how you learned how to advocate for her, um, because that's really what you're what caregivers are doing. And if there were ever difficulties with other family members or even the other healthcare providers who disagreed with her decisions and tried to get you to um, take another route, uh, another route, or a different course of action.
1: That's a that's a great question, and. Um, the the dynamic of every relationship in our life changed um, family friends now her being her being a doctor I guess did allow us to see behind the veil to a certain extent but there were many situations which were were shocking there was a situation where she was in the hospital um this was after the liver resection and she was in a lot of pain and she asked for a specific pain medication and the doctor on duty labeled her a drug seeker Mm -hmm. and refused to give her the medication Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: how could she possibly know the name of the medication Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and well she was a doctor so that's why right right um but so sometimes it helped and it, it didn't help. I think everyone has their own frustrations. But learning to be her advocate, I think it was just it was about protection. It really was more than anything else wanting Wanting her to be safe, however, I could make her safe. So I I learned everything I possibly could. Um, my I I still did a really great job in finance when I was still in finance. Um, I helped form a private equity company in Dubai. You know, mm-hmm. I, but I was pulling further away from that and spending more. In In fact, my my business partner in Dubai at one point in time said, "Why don't we start a life sciences fund? Because you're learning so much." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I was trying to understand how to manage systems and um, again, having had a great team. And what I mean about a great team is that they respected, and even though they weren't palliative care doctors, they respected her wishes on how she wanted to manage the care. But I can tell you, we uh, went to um, a very well-known Hospital, New York, at the very beginning of her journey. Um, and I had spoken to the staff beforehand saying, please let the doctor know that my wife doesn't want to know anything. This is when we were interviewing doctors. Mm-hmm. And we, we sat down and the doctor basically berated her for not wanting to know and then said something like, well, with the number of lymph nodes you had positive, You have to pay attention to what you're doing. My wife Mm -hmm. looked at me with tears in her eyes, Mm -hmm. got up, left. I don't know how I didn't hit the doctor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I shut the door and I literally, the words that came out of my mouth, I would not repeat now. Mm -hmm. But basically I said, one day you're going to be on the end where you need a doctor, a compassionate doctor. And I hope to God that you don't meet somebody like yourself. Mm. And that's when I realized that advocacy had to do with many different things. Like to to sit there and say, um, you know, Des, wait a minute. I don't think this doctor is right for you. And But she had to put her trust in me as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I could navigate a lot of these things. And then also, you know... Dealing with the insurance companies and knowing that I was going to spend hours on the phone sometimes getting certain things approved, which it got Mm -hmm. better over time. I don't know what the insurance system is like in the United States now, but as her journey progressed, the insurance companies were easier to deal with. Um, Mm. Despite the fact that there were times where I had to get on the phone and argue with them and and argue that, you know, I was going to go to the Senate or something, like <laughs> something ridiculous like that, because she had already used all the chemos available. Right. And then her oncologist would say, yeah, but you know, if we take um, tamoxifen and we mix it with this and I mix it with this and we give her like this little cocktail, it will give her more time. But mm-hmm. that's not what was standard for an, an insurance company. So right. Right. I had to get on the phone and then, Um, you know, so yeah, the, the advocacy thing came from again, and I think the frustration with care, being a caregiver is, you know, you can't, you can't fix it, you know, Mm -hmm. like I wish I had the magic wand and I, I told her, you know, so many times, I wish I could just put my hand on you and the cancer just comes into me and you're okay. Um. But you can't do that as a caregiver so the advocacy i think becomes you know, for me in, in, to a certain extent it became the cancer it became the thing to fight against to make oh, sure i got mm-hmm. the system to work
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's an that's an interesting way to put it but it makes total and complete sense and uh to answer your question the the healthcare system People still have to fight for, you know, fighting with insurance companies to get treatments approved and all of those things are still happening. Um, Certainly, you know, people, a a huge um, progress is that people can't be kicked off their insurance if they have a disease like cancer. So that part is different. Uh, Before you would reach, you know, a a maximum and, and that was kind of it. So thank goodness that part has changed, but that can be really exhausting, you know. Trying to make sure that they're just getting the basic treatment that they need, or that is being recommended.
1: Yeah, I, I agree mm-hmm. with it. it's. It's unfortunate that it it still is that way. I, I can tell you from uh, my experience here in Italy, from a socialized medical standpoint, mm-hmm. even though it is everything is covered the system just is outrageously slow. Um, I had Mm. a a good friend of mine that she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and she had to wait nine months for the surgery. Oh, my. And it's because it's not technically a dangerous cancer. You know, air quotes, dangerous Mm. cancer. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it's also how do you ask someone to you give someone that diagnosis and then you say, okay, well, just go about your business. We'll see each other in nine months and you don't worry about it. Oh, so no, you know, from, from the human aspect of it, um, it's, it's amazing how certain things are done, uh, but mm-hmm. I guess there's no r- right system. Let's say.
0: Yeah. We can all work towards, um, better systems. When I was in France, everybody I knew there who was French and some people who were British, who had come to France, loved and raved about the French healthcare system. Um, I remember once being on uh, a tour, my daughters and I went to Monet's house and we stopped at this really quaint little windmill restaurant on the way and we were seated at tables with you know other people on the tour and uh, some were from France, some were from Australia and talking about, I don't even remember how it came up, but talking about Healthcare and how it is in the United States, they were just dumbfounded. Like, they could not believe what I was saying, (laughs) like, that you had to pay for anything, or, um, you know, that you couldn't choose your doctor, or it had to be a network, and the costs of everything. They really just couldn't even wrap their head around it. So, you know, there are good systems and not so good systems. And hopefully, here in America, we can do some work to find something so even more people are getting the care they need in a timely in a timely manner and that they're having the compassion that they deserve. I mean that's one of the things that I saw working in the hospital is that and you don't even mean to do it. It's not that, you know, healthcare most healthcare professionals go into that field because they truly want to help people and care about people. But it's easy to see people as patients rather than as people with identities and likes and dislikes and hopes and dreams and all of those things. So I think that's one of the most important roles of an advocate, whether it's a family advocate or a hired advocate, is to make the person you know, a human being to those that are caring for them.
1: What 100, and it's one of the reasons why my wife went into palliative care um, because she saw her journey bringing her towards that. Because it's unusual, in my opinion, that palliative care is actually its own sort of specialty because it's a philosophy of how to, I think, um, care for someone. The necessary, a discipline. It is covered or falls under. You know usually pain management pain and palliative care and palliative care is not just about terminal disease it's about chronic disease but it is about seeing the the person and that's when i mentioned that we had such a great you know group of doctors is because they saw desiree as a person with dreams with hopes wanting to maintain her dignity and that taught me a lot as well right because just Mm -hmm. watching that from the medical staff uh, and that led her into palliative care and speaking about it's very funny because she would say people before patients Mm. Mm -hmm. because that that's that's really what we we all we're not we are not the disease we we bring into a hospital or to see a doctor Mm -hmm. We are a person that needs to manage a medical situation, so we can maintain our identity for as mm-hmm. best as we can, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think that's that's a very important part of of caregiving because if you are able to as a caregiver, if you connect to what you are really doing is allowing that person to remain a person as best as they can mm-hmm. um, instead of a patient, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's extremely important. Like my, my, my wife should have been probably in hospice care or had hospice come, mm-hmm. but I decided to take on that role because the house remained a house it di- it didn't take away her identity of being you know the wife watching friends playing with her dog it didn't become mm-hmm. a medical how, um environment to a certain extent mm-hmm. because it was through, it, it it i was the caregiver as as mm-hmm. mu- much as i was able to um, mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the reasons why dignity is is such an important concept and aspect and as a caregiver that's one of the biggest gifts you're giving the person you're caring for
0: mm, because you're I, allowing
1: them to maintain a certain level of dignity
0: mhm i i couldn't agree more and you know it can certainly be challenging especially when you know there are circumstances that you end up being a caregiver maybe for a family member or somebody who caused you harm you know at some point in your life and you have that baggage Um, and I think this is something really common for people who especially are caring for parents or grandparents or even siblings that you have to kind of come to terms with um, maybe past experiences in that relationship and you know really take a, a hard look and and ask yourself if you're able to advocate for somebody even with that history
1: Oh, wow, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's it's interesting you mention that because my my wife was diagnosed in nineteen ninety eight, and a month later, in November of nineteen ninety eight, is when she had the surgery. In December of nineteen ninety eight, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. Now, I mm-hmm. had really very little contact with my my father, even though my parents stayed married, um, and my, my wife spoke to my, my father a lot, um, about what he was going through and stuff like that. And she was the one that also showed me how selfless somebody could be because here she was dealing with her own chemotherapy and everything else. And she was, you know, um, trying to motivate him and support him and mm. she was explaining to me how I could help him and how I could help my mom mm. and it it wasn't easy because that baggage does sit there even though I had forgiven him and you know all of all of that and I realized that I couldn't have ever taken care of my wife the way I did or I couldn't have been as resilient as I am if I didn't grow up the way I did. So mm-hmm. it, in a certain way, it, it provided such amazing benefits. Mm-hmm. But at that first moment, there is that feeling for, I think, a lot of people, because I've, I've also had clients that sp- speak about this as well, is, um, oh, no, the way that person treated me, I'm not going to give them the best of me because they never did it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know it's it's a big word that's thrown out there today the the word purpose Mm -hmm. and um it's in these moments where to a certain extent you you need to connect to your purpose and your purpose in in my opinion it's not you know being greta and it could be being greta and saving the environment or doing something like that but your purpose in a way is to overcome your own ego to help someone or some cause mm-hmm. and it's not it's not easy but when you realize your own growth from that as well mm-hmm. then then it it is easier because i realized with my dad i was i was growing as a person for letting all of that nonsense in a way because I was still carrying it with me. But, you know, here I was, I was, you know, 30 something years old and it had been a really long time since my my dad ever touched me. So um, there was no reason to carry it. Mm -hmm. I wanted my identity to be something else. I wanted my identity to be the person that stood up and did the right thing.
0: Mm yeah and that is like you said putting ego aside and you know being able to come to that point is is not an not an easy feat but i think a part of that surrender too that you talked about you know realizing that um, and i would you know sometimes as a patient advocate you know i've had clients with more than 20 you know family members close family members and they all have different relationships and that baggage. And, you know, I would um, just suggest that, you know, think about what kind of relationship you want to have with this person. And if, you know, that their time is limited, just think about what you want to say to them, if there's anything you want to say. And if you want to pull away, and you're comfortable wow. doing that, then, You know there's there's no judgment there and it's all about boundaries but i think thinking carefully as you as one can because you really don't you can't anticipate what it's going to be like when somebody's gone you you think you can but you really don't know until they're gone but um trying to have some closure and to not uh, have regrets after they've passed um is certainly is certainly a goal i think um you know, it's interesting. You brought up uh, that was another question I had. Is if you know anything in your life had prepared you? So talking about your relationship with your your dad and preparing you to be a caregiver, um, you know, I, I think it's common for a lot of people. If they maybe don't think about it, but a lot of caregivers, there have been things in their past that um, have turned out to you know been have been helpful and maybe to have developed qualities that made them a better caregiver or qualities they had that were enhanced by caregiving. So what do you think are maybe two qualities that you developed in your process of becoming a caregiver or were already there, but were enhanced by the process?
1: Um, Great question and I, I know for sure that a quality that was there that only became enhanced was managing change. Mm. And really, that does come from my childhood, uh, because I was never sure. And it's, it's not that my, my, my father was was um, drunk every night, but It was often, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be the night I was going to get beat or it was the night he was going to, you know, hug me until I couldn't breathe and just kiss my face. Mm -hmm. So I had to become comfortable with the unexpected, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that, I think, was a great lesson, which only became stronger dealing with everything that was going on with my wife because, oh, I I tell you that those gut wrenching, you know, stomach churning hours or days of waiting for the results of mm-hmm. you know her most recent PET scan or mm-hmm. and you, I had to I knew I would have the ability to manage it and I just had to learn how to access it um, mm-hmm. on it on a regular basis because. And I, I throw that in the concept of resilience, but when our back is against a wall, we're all resilient. Each and every one of us has resilience in us. Mm-hmm. But nine times out of ten, we don't know how to turn it on unless our back is against the wall. And mm-hmm. so one of the things I learned through the journey was how to how to harness that or how to how to access it at will when i needed it and not necessarily when my back was against the wall um mm-hmm. another skill i think that probably i i learned more with with desiree was living in the moment um i wasn't that way as a child because as, as, a, as a young kid i i started working you know i um, I'm dating myself but back then um, when I was 13 you could find a job so Mm -hmm. uh, I started working at a very young age because money was going to be my salvation and I always had these long term views and it was in a way for my freedom Mm -hmm. and during the caregiving process because the future was so unknown I had to learn how to focus on the now, and you know you have Eckhart Tolle and everybody else talking about the now, but I really I can honestly say that without a shadow of a doubt, life unfolds in the ordinary moments, and the journey with her allowed me to to enjoy, you know the, those those little things, and that's where hope came from for me. Mm. Because it was hope that we would laugh, you know, mm-hmm. in that day, or, you know, have a great meal or a little dog would run around. Whatever whatever it was, but that I was hopeful that we would have these wonderful little moments. Mm-hmm. And the long term objective, not that it faded away because of course I wanted her to survive and everything else, but it it wasn't so imposing anymore. Hmm. So those are the two skills hmm. I would say that were oh. most relevant. Hmm.
0: And yeah, and those are tremendous skills that I'm sure, you know, have have impacted your life now. So um, I, you know, it's your your wife sounds like a remarkable remarkable human being, and. I think we could uh, have another session talking about, you know, what do you do when the person you're caring for is gone, and so much of your life, you know, has been devoted to their care and their well-being, um, so if you your game, I'd like to, you know, invite you to talk more about that, and um, then I, I'd like you to share, you know, what what you're doing now, and how, you know, the caregiving journey impacted your career choice and um, those kinds of things.
1: I I would be more than willing, for sure.
0: Great. Wonderful. Um, So if you want to share a little bit about, uh, I know, you know, you're a life coach. And if if, uh, you can share a little bit about, um, what you're doing and how people can reach you if they're if they're interested in in contacting you that would be wonderful.
1: Oh, great! Sure. Um, so, I I am a life coach and I started life coaching. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest. In a way, I, I started it for myself um, mm-hmm. to deal with a lot of those things. We'll talk about in, in, in another mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. But I also I had learned so much to to put to use that I started working with caregivers and I started working with um, you know surviving caregivers at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It morphed into also people looking for radical life transformation because I left a great paying job in Dubai to show up in Rome, Italy, not speaking the language, not knowing anyone, not having a house to pursue certain dreams. So I, let's say I've walked the walk and so I can mm-hmm. talk the talk now. Um, but so what I do is I I work with basically that, that type of clientele um, one-on-one. I don't do any group coaching, though I have in the past hosted retreats here in the small little town in Abruzzo that I live in, which is called Pachentro, mm, um, wonderful. But with COVID, uh, that's that's on hold. Let's say, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, I have had two clients where I had done a 21-day one-on-one coaching um, life redesign, where basically mm. they they come here for 21 days, and you know this is small town Italy with very Wi-Fi and no one speaks English and we're in a national park of Abruzzo, and it it, it is a big shock to the system which some people look for and need and we walk through what comes up during that and um, it's all virtual of course because well honestly I'm supposed to spend six months in Italy and six months in the United States that's how I wanted to fashion (laughs) it, but Mm. uh, with COVID, I'm I'm spending more time here, so Mm. um, but it it is all virtual and people can contact me via my website, which is my name, um, Mm robertparty.com and um, I do a a free session, 20-minute session, 15-minute session, Um, Mm. I think it's 20 minutes, Uh, (laughs) I have to think about that now because Mm -hmm. um, I I changed the calendar Uh, Mm. and we yeah we see if we're fit because the most important thing for anyone that is thinking of working with a coach is you have to feel that the coach is entering in empathy with you Mm. because the process is pretty much the same but you want to feel comfortable and safe with the person you're working with a lot of people Mm -hmm. a lot of times people pick somebody because of their reputation but -hmm. if it's not that right fit with you Mm -hmm. it's never going to feel genuine so i always tell people that if they're thinking about coaching they should interview more than one coach before they Mm -hmm. ever decide
0: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely i mean everybody you know we all have our personalities and um you know, some fit better with others, and in a way, I mean, you know, it's a it's a fairly personal, uh, much like you know, being invited into a family to advocate for them. Um, you know, somebody coaching you on a huge life transition is 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 a very personal thing. So that absolutely makes sense, and certainly, you know, it's so wonderful that you understood from being a caregiver how, you know, challenging it is for caregivers and that you did coaching for them because a lot of them, you know, once the person is, is gone, they're, they're lost, you know, and trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? So, um, and we'll talk more about that on another upcoming episode. I'm excited sure. for that. So well, am I. Thank yeah. Thank you so much, Robert. This has really been wonderful and it's just been an honor to, to have you as a guest and your experience is so valuable and I think will help so many other caregivers, um, you know, who are going through similar challenges. So thank you again.
1: Thank you. And I I hope it does help. I hope someone definitely gets something out of it.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, they will. (laughs) They will. I guarantee it. All right. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk again
1: soon. Okay. Take care. Mm -hmm.